to the Bean Ninjas podcast, where you get an all-access pass to see what happens behind the closed doors of a fast-growing global bookkeeping and financial reporting business. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Bean Ninjas podcast. Today I'm chatting with Robert Gerrish and Robert has done a number of things. He's written a couple of books. He's the author of Flying Solo and also The One Minute Commute. And he is the one of the original founders of the Flying Solo community, which many of you may have heard of, which is a community for solopreneurs. They have over 100,000 members now. And during the episode, we hear hear Robert's insights on building a community and how you maintain momentum with that and get community members involved. We look at what his experiences was like in exiting this business, Flying Solo, but also one of his early businesses, and and we draw some comparisons and similarities around those two exits. And we also have a great debate around financial freedom, and Robert has a slightly different perspective on that to me. And so it's really interesting hearing his point of view there. So enjoy the show. Hi, Robert, and welcome to the Bean Ninjas podcast. Thank you very much, Meryl. I'm very pleased to be speaking with you. Robert, it looks like you've worked across a range of different areas over your career. So do you want to start by telling our audience a little bit about you and what you're working on at the moment and some of the things that you've worked on in the past? Sure. Now, look, uh, a danger, danger, I should tell you. Anybody ask me to talk about myself, you're going to have to get ready with that uh, delete button because I'm <laughs> I don't stop. So look, yeah, look, I'll try and be brief, okay? So I'm probably most latterly kind of best known, if I'm indeed known at all, for the business that I created about 12 years ago, which is called Flying Solo, which is an online community of little businesses. What led me into that was I moved, I'm originally from the UK. I moved over here to Australia 20 years ago. And what kind of precipitated that move was that I spent this sort of 10 years prior to that working in the sort of marketing and design industry in the UK. So I worked with a small company. We were a small sort of bespoke boutique. That was the word of the day, sort of marketing and design company. And we did lots of work with sort of creative brands, youth brands, music, all that sort of, you know, really good, exciting stuff. And I was on the sort of client service side. So I looked after major accounts and, and really kind of learned the business through this small business. And we grew into quite a nice little business. And in the end, we actually got the attention of Saatchi and Saatchi, who at that time were the world's biggest ad agency network. And they bought our business. And so at the age of whatever I was, I think I was in my early 30s by then, we sold that business and became part of this worldwide advertising network called Saatchi and Saatchi. And I didn't really love to be part of that big network, to be honest. I much preferred the small, nimble, creative agency. But I, I stayed there for a little over a year and ran a little subsidiary business for Saatchi and Saatchi, but got a bit fed up with it and, frankly, was completely burnt out. So at that point, I, you know, I was footloose and fancy free and I had some cash in the bank because we'd sold the business. So I started in some, you know, what turned out to be not terribly successful ventures, but very enjoyable. I I managed a pop band for a while. I started an art gallery. I was just kind of messing about and having a lot of fun and very rapidly lost a lot of money. 
which will teach me. But so at the end of that period, I thought, right, you know, I've, I've got to learn something here. I was burnt out when I had that big job. I went into the creative industry businesses and, and they didn't work out too well. So I need to kind of get my stuff together here. So I decided the best thing to do was put a backpack on and, and travel the world. So I was very fortunate I was able to do that. Footloose, fancy free, no family, no partner, you know, off I went. So I went off in basically, frankly, in search of myself and found myself in Sydney through a delightful twist of fate and absolutely fell in love with Australia the minute I arrived. And that's where I really started this journey to try and design a work-life kind of balance or work-lifestyle that really suited me. And what I saw when I came to Australia was a lot of people that were working like that, that were running small businesses, but businesses that allowed them to live the kind of life they wanted to live. And that's what I completely buried myself in. And that's really, to cut a long story short, that's where I tripped across the opportunity that turned into flying solo. I realized there were so many other people either doing or wanting to do what I was doing. So with my sort of marketing hat on, I registered the name Flying Solo. I wrote a book called Flying Solo. And I've spent the last probably, well, it's nearly 20 years now, actually, just purely focusing on that topic and that audience. And to this day, that's still, you know, kind of largely what I do, even though I've, I've actually exited the Flying Solo business, I'm still very much involved in that sort of space. And you mentioned that you have exited the business, but I think it's still a really interesting story around how you built that community. And I think communities are becoming more common now, but 12 years ago, I mean, I wasn't a business owner back then, but I imagine that things might have been different even with the technology side of running a community. So what are some of the things that you learned over those 12 years around pulling together that community and growing it to, I believe there was over 100,000 members at one point? Yeah, I think it's I think they're sitting at about 120,000 Australian members now and it's still growing, you know, fairly steadily. But yeah, look, to say that um that things were different then to how they are now is is a is a mild understatement. It was massively different. I mean, it was, you know, very well relatively early days of the internet, no Facebook, no Twitter, no social media at all. And yet we sort of we started a community almost Merrill by accident to be honest because it was just something that um, by then I'd formed a partnership with a lovely woman called Sam Leader, who to this day is a very close friend of mine. And then latterly, another guy, Peter Crocker, also a very good friend, joined. But anyway, in the early days, we were using it pretty well as, as just a place to post the articles that Sam and I were writing. So we'd kind of written a book and we had, you know, we both enjoyed or both enjoy writing. So portal was the kind of word of the day back when that was in 2004, 2005. So we started publishing content, but there was no, we didn't have our eyes on any kind of community. We just thought, let's just stick this stuff up there and see what happens. And then and you know, a new innovation came along where people could actually post comments on articles, you know, as websites started getting more developed. So of course we let that happen. And then we saw people trying to have conversations via article comments, which was hugely painful to observe, let alone take part in, you know, just trying to communicate through article comments was just tragic because, you know, technology wasn't there to let someone know that actually that comment that you've written on someone else's replied to you. So you had to manually go, it was a real mess. But then happily, 
forums, what forums were already kind of in their early stage of development. So we realized rather slowly, we did most things very slowly, uh, we realized that a forum was what we needed. We needed to get out of the way and let these people talk to each other. So that's what we did. By then, I think it was about 2008, that's when Peter Crocker had joined us. So by the time we opened our forum, people were, it was metaphorically like a whole load of people trying to get into a nightclub, all pushing up against the door. And eventually we opened the doors because we got the technology right. And our forums from day one were massively successful. Now, if you look back in sort of that kind of period, the mid-2000s, people were starting forums, but they were not at all successful. You know, a lot of our competitors at the time, Anthill, Smart Company, Fairfax Media, you know, a lot of others tried forums and they just didn't work. And the reason they didn't work is that they didn't have the queue that were jostling at the door, whereas we did, you know, through complete accident. So by the time we opened the forums, everything got, you know, very busy very quickly. And it was wonderful. And we realized then in a very short period that us getting out of the way was the best thing to do because, frankly, small businesses are wonderful at helping each other. They don't need somebody in the way. And, you know, when we started it, I was doing an awful lot of coaching and consulting at that time. And I, when we started the forums, I thought, God, this is just going to be terrible for me. I'm just going to have a billion questions a day to answer. But not at all. Nobody was interested, in my opinion, delightfully. They were just talking amongst themselves. So, you know, I remember when we first opened it, the first week we were, the three of us were sort of sitting there going, oh my God, someone's asked that question. How on earth do we answer that? How do we answer that? And by the time we'd worked out amongst the three of us what we should say, four other people had answered it. That was the real eye-opener for me. That's the biggest lesson I learned is give the people the power, the ability to speak. Just make sure that you manage things efficiently and, you know, magic happens. And that's what we did. So we turned into kind of custodians of a community. And again, if you use the metaphor of a pub or a nightclub, you know, our job was to keep the tables clean, make sure the music wasn't too loud, throw someone out now and again if they were being a bit rowdy, you know, and just give it a coat of paint every now and again. That was our job. And once we realized that, you know, good things happened and, and the community grew, you know, and it was a total delight. Occasionally you get a nutcase that comes into the forums, but, you know, that happens in a pub. So you just have to cope with that. And I know that a number of our listeners are in the process of building their own communities or wanting to do so. And that's actually something that we're doing at Beaninjas as well. We're in the early stages of that. And do you have any thoughts around how you foster that community spirit, for want of a better word, where it's not you as the business owner or the founder of the community interacting one-on-one with people within it, how you foster that community where they're helping each other and they feel empowered to do that? Well, that's a great question. And the answer is by having really, really clear and thorough guidelines. That's the solution, I believe, is that people have to know what's expected of them. People have to know what's okay and what's not okay. So guidelines are essential. And, you know, we had, and in fact, if you go on to Flying Solo into the forums, you'll still see the guidelines there. And, you know, certainly, I'm not sure what it's like these days, but we would constantly fiddle and tweak and adjust and update those guidelines based on what we saw. And that's the thing. If people know what's expected, then that's how they behave. In the same way that you go into a pub and there's a sign on the wall in every single pub that says, this is okay, this isn't okay. 
you know, you know where you stand. And that's, people have to know they're in a safe space. People have to know what's okay and what's not okay. And as kind of custodians of a forum or a community, you have to act quickly when you need to. You can't dither about. You know, the thought of having a community that you leave alone, well, there's plenty of those around and they're a mess. You know, a lot of the stuff that's going on within the sort of world media about Facebook and things that appear on Facebook and don't get removed, you know, that's a clearly, you know, that's a massive network and they've got all kinds of problems day to day, minute by minute, second by second. But anybody running a small group, a small community, even if it's 10 or 15 people, you just need to keep an eye on it. And often you'll find people that volunteer will help you. I mean, we we never had volunteers. We paid people to moderate for us. But you just got to keep an eye on things. If people know it's a safe space, if people seem to be treated with courtesy and respect and decency, then that's how they will behave. And if somebody steps out of line, you just need to act swiftly, thoroughly, so that everyone else sees, you know, this is not okay. It's not a big task, but it's an important task. And people observe. The thing with forums, any community, it's worth remembering, any online community, that for every one person that's involved in discussion, there's another nine people, that's what the stats say, there's another nine people that are lurking, watching, reading, listening, you know? And those are the people you want to be careful about because most people don't get involved in forums. Most people just consume and read and follow the conversations. But that audience that are watching and lurking, the ones that you don't know about because they're not necessarily registered with you, they're not signed up with you, they haven't spent money with you necessarily, those are the people that matter because they're the ones that are going away talking to other people saying, oh, I was at this community over here and they look to be really nice people, really decent, friendly, helpful. It's a task that's really important. It's beautiful. When you get it right, it's the most wonderful thing. But... um yeah, I think that's that's <laughs> I could run on for communities. I think that's a great answer, and I wanted to follow on the story of flying solo and ask about what that process was like in deciding to move on from the business, and maybe you could talk about the acquisition process and your thought process behind that. Yeah, look, I, I will. Ha- Sorry, were you about to ask me more? I was just going to add one other question to that because you mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast that you had exited your first business to Saatchi and Saatchi. And so I was interested in what it was like going through. Not many people go through, or as business owners, we don't go through that many exits throughout our career. So I was interested in the comparison between those two processes as well. Yeah. Okay. Great question, Meryl. Well, look, okay. So the first one, I was a teeny weeny minority shareholder in that business in the UK. So I will not pretend that I was um, in any way really directing, leading that particular business. I mean, ultimately, I became senior within that business after we'd sold it. But up to the point of sale, I was a very, very minority shareholder. I mean, I was such a small shareholder, and it was so kind of inconsequential to me at the time that I didn't even really remember it. When the two partners of the business, lovely guys, came to me and said, Robert, we'd like you to you know, join the board and become a shareholder frankly i didn't even know what they were talking about you know i was in my late 20s for much of that i wasn't thinking about anything like that you know it wasn't the same kind of business environment we have today i was just loving the job i was getting paid way too much money for a young single man 
this was you know thatcher's heady 80s in london it was just it was party party time and you know these guys had become a shareholder i went yeah whatever you know i didn't know what they were talking about really and then the next thing i know they said oh we're going to sell the business to Archers. Went, oh, okay that sounds like fun and they said and here's a big fat check for you and oh that's nice that's how it was then right so i wasn't involved hugely in that process but what i did realize somewhat later in my career is just how clever those guys had been, how they built the business, how they built value in the business, how they courted a buyer. And I realized later, much later, that that was sharp, that was clever. But at the time, I was just really an employee and I didn't think much about it. So kind of coming up to today's time and what, what happened within Flying Solo is, um, you know, I won't fib, I won't pretend that uh, we built the business with the exit in mind, which we all know we we're meant to do. We didn't do that. We were just having fun. But then it got to a point where, you know, I'm in my 60s now. I'm, what am I, 63 or something? So I was well aware that, you know, I need to be thinking about what I'm going to do next. This was a few years ago. Those thoughts were starting to enter my mind. Sam and Peter were both sort of 20 years my junior. But we were all sitting around. We'd been running this business for 12 years together having a great time you know it, it gave us everything we wanted we were able to spend time with our families we all had young families when we got together and uh it had served us perfectly but we did we were always thinking what's next where to next what do we do next and whilst we were sort of starting to have those thoughts we were actually approached by a company um in fact we've had a couple of approach, approaches over the years but we were approached by one company who took us I'm going back about three or four years now, took us right through the due diligence process. And you know, in a nutshell, I'm, most of your listeners would know what that means, but it basically means a company comes and has a very detailed look under the hood of your business. Now, we were, we were kind of ready for that. We'd always, even though we might from the outside have appeared like a bunch of hippies, we actually ran a very tight ship kind of behind the scenes. So we had everything in place. And when somebody wanted to come and look under the hood, what they saw was a very nice, shiny engine. You know, we had nothing to hide. We had all our ducks lined up. So this company took us through the due diligence process and looked at all our accounts and spoke to our key supporters, you know, governments and corporates and all these people we have relationships with. They did all this stuff, which took about four months. And then at the end of it, they slapped an offer on the table, which was just an absolute insult. And um, I kind of didn't mind because by then I really didn't like these particular people. And the thought of being in business with them horrified me, quite honestly. And they wanted me to sort of stick around for a bit. So by the time they made us an offer, the offer was, was just woeful. And I was a little bit relieved because I, I just didn't want to work with these guys, to be quite honest. But through the course of that whole process, one thing, you know, it's a little bit like you imagine, Meryl, that you're going to sell your house. What you tend to do is, you know, you make it look really good. You get the gardener guy over to clean it up. You give it a lick of paint. You put new carpets in. You get it ready every Saturday for people to come and traipse around it. And what happens is through that process of getting your house ready for sale, you end up going, oh, this is actually quite a nice house. You see your house through different eyes. And to some extent, that's what happened with our business. When we went through this whole due diligence process, it made me realize just how bloody valuable it was and how exciting and how attractive it was as a business, which you kind of forget when you're in there day to day. So anyway, but 
rolling forward a bit. So we told these guys to bugger off. And um, by then, you know, again, once you've kind of prepared your house for sale, you kind of thinking, hmm, I wouldn't mind selling it now. So I said to Sam and Peter, look, I'm going to, why don't I take as my project for the whole of the next year, so this was 2016, I think, my project for the year is to find the right buyer for our business. So that was my project. That was my key project. So Sam and Peter were doing other things in the business. I was just purely focused on finding the right person to buy our business. And I had the best fun ever for a year just talking to people. We had a really good story to tell. It was a very genuine story. You know, here I am as the founder. I'm in my 60s and, you know, I don't want to do this forever. So, you know, we had a very honest story that we were sharing with people. And frankly, Meryl, we were at the point in our business where what we needed to do to prosper was not really within our skill set. You know, that we ultimately ended up being a, a, an online publishing business. That was the business model that we worked on. And it's not a terribly pleasant business model, to be honest. If you look around, you don't have to look too far. News Limited, Fairfax, The Guardian, CNN, ABC, everywhere, everyone is struggling to make the publishing business work as a model. So frankly, why should it have been any easier for us? So we were at that point, we were thinking, what do we need to do to really crank this business to the next level? And what we needed to do in our hearts was not what any of the three of us wanted to do. So it was a perfect time to sell. And that, again, is what we were saying to people. So we went to very reputable companies. We were talking, you know, I, actually, I shouldn't mention names, but we were talking with, you know, big publishers. We were talking with uh, other organizations that might want a a community plugged into them. So we spoke to some of the people in the accounting software business, some names that you would be very familiar to you, the current organizations that would benefit from having 120,000 Australian small businesses plugged in. You know what I mean? We're having great conversations, a lot of interesting conversations. And then it came down to uh, three people that were showing interest in us. And we went through that whole process between the three of them. And then very delightfully, we sold to uh, Pinstripe Media, David Koshy's, Koshy's uh, business nearly three years ago. So, And I loved every minute of the process, I've got to be honest. It was terrific. I think you shared some really interesting insights there. The, the one that resonated with me was if you're preparing your house for sale or your business, you actually start to look at it through a different lens and think, oh, actually, this is actually quite a nice business to run. I've heard of other people saying something similar where they've optimized everything to prepare it for sale and then thought, oh, hang on, this is actually quite a good business. We knew we had a nice business, but we didn't realize how good it was until, you know, when you pull everything together and um, with these first people that were after us, you know, we went through everything. And then when they, when they came to us with their, I mean, they were just guys who were basically trying to steal us. And there's people like that out there all the time. And uh, But by the time they came to us with their derisory offer, it was so laughable to me because I thought, are you kidding? You know, it's, it was just, it was ridiculous. I think they thought that we were sort of, you know, in a bad state or wanted to get out. And we were neither of those things. You know, we were loving every day. We'd never, ever, I can't remember a day that I didn't enjoy. And so they just misread us, which is, you know, that's okay. That's how they operate. But um yeah, it, it is. It's very liberating when you go through that process 
and you see value where you didn't see it before. That's a great thing. So to anyone listening who's maybe thinking about it but hasn't haven't done anything, I'd say get started because you will probably be pleasantly surprised and you'll find value where you didn't know it existed. That's, that's what I certainly found. Next, I wanted to talk a little bit about your writing. And you've recently published a book, The One Minute Commute. And I was wondering if you could share some of the the key points in that book that you think might be relevant to the audience and also just talk a little bit about your experience with writing and how you found it. Yeah, well, look, I'm going to be sound very repetitious, but I love writing. There's my <laughs> What's really interesting is, um, you know, winding right back to when I first started on this journey of, of creating, you know, my own kind of lifestyle business. I should define lifestyle Usually these days when you hear anyone mention a lifestyle business, you see ridiculous images of people lying in hammocks with, with MacBook Airs, you know, living the dream. And that's a load of bullshit as far as I'm concerned. A lifestyle business to me is a business that suits the way you want to live. As simple as that. So it's a business that puts food on the table, that allows you to be the same person at the beginning of the day that you are at the end of the person, permits you to be a decent partner, husband, parent, whatever you, whatever roles you take. That, to my mind, is a lifestyle business. And that's the business I've always wanted. And that's the business, happily, that I've, I've got, I've had. You know, writing is, to me, is something that I've always enjoyed doing. So writing was always going to be something that um, was going to be a key element of, of my sort of ideal business. So from the, the, I mean, we wrote, say, Flying Solo was a, was a book that um, was the first book that I wrote. I co-wrote it with Sam, Samantha, my business partner. And, you know, that was a book. We hadn't really thought about writing a book. Well, we, I got a phone call one day from Alan and Unwin, who'd read some columns that I'd be writing in the Telegraph, and they said, would you write a book? And I went, yeah, why not? And uh, what, what should we call it? And they said, well, we thought we might call it Flying Solo. So, you know, I'm a marketing man, and my business is called Flying Solo, and they want they want to name the book Flying Solo, like, duh, yeah, I'll do that. So, you know, it, it was just delightful. So I never had to find a publisher. The publisher rang me up. And then I worked with Sam on that because my wife, like Jane, and I just had, our son had just been born and I was knee-deep in diapers and all that sort of stuff. So I, I just wasn't hitting any writing deadlines. So um, I asked Sam if she'd like to work with me on the book, and she did. And Alan Unwin were happy with that. So it was, she was a sort of startup commercial writer i was the you know sort of say about 20 years her senior so it was you know it was kind of younger and older person worked really well and we loved writing the book so kind of move forwards then to it was two years ago now but yes two years ago that i finished writing the one minute commute and basically what that is i mean the, the title the one minute commute for which i have to thank my publisher it wasn't my name i had a silly name but um they came up with a one minute commute the idea being you know it's how long it takes you to commute from your kitchen to your bedroom or whatever so it's aimed at you know people running a very small business in many cases from a home base but it's not essential that you're at home and it also plays on the name of the one minute manager so it's got a certain degree of familiarity as a, as a book title anyway what that book is what i'm holding it in my hand now is basically is everything i've ever learned in uh, 20 odd years of running my own business now of how to run a really enjoyable and viable very small business so it covers everything it's not uh, i don't go into huge detail on lots of internety things it's more kind of who you need to be how you need to operate how to structure your day 
how to work efficiently and effectively, how to find clients, how to keep clients, and indeed how to exit. It's kind of a manual of how to work on your own or with a small group in a very small business. And I loved writing it and um, few people seem to enjoy reading it. So there you go. And what were your thoughts on how to make the most of your time or, or how to structure your day? That's a favorite topic of mine. Well, it's a big topic. And it's, I think, interesting since um, when I wrote uh, Flying Solo with Sam, the first book in 2004, 2005, the world was different to how it is now. There is now so much coming at us all day, every day, that it's, it's actually increasingly difficult to be productive. So look, the short answer and the easy answer to how to kind of work productively and work efficiently is to always be clear on what your priorities are. What are you trying to achieve? Where are you going? If you're not clear on exactly where you're going and what your priorities are, in other words, what are the things that are going to get me where I'm going the quickest and most effective? If you're not clear on those, then you'll always be open to distraction. So you'll always be moved from your focus by a Facebook post or a LinkedIn message or a Instagram something or other, you know, these things are major, major distractions that mess with our heads hugely unless we have the strength to go, you know what, that's not getting me where I'm going, so you can all bugger off. To do that, we have to be clear, what, where am I headed? What are my priorities? What are the key things I need to be doing this day, this half day, this hour, this minute to get me in that direction? And if you can kind of nail that, and it's clearly not an easy task, but if you can constantly be thinking, what's going to get me where I need to go? And does, then that will help you put up the barriers to all this nonsense that increasingly surrounds us. You know, and we have to, if we don't get in control of our day, it's never going to happen. We have to do it ourselves. Yeah, that's great advice. At the section of the podcast now where we talk about our theme, which is around financial freedom. And so I had two questions for you, Robert. One is, what does financial freedom mean to you? And then the second is on a scale of one to 10, with one being just starting and 10 being financially free. Where are you along this journey? Okay. Interesting. Right. Well, I would say financial freedom is a funny old phrase. I've got to be honest with you, Meryl. I don't love it as a phrase. I don't, because I, I fear that too many people are constantly striving for what they think is financial freedom. And, and to a lot of people, what they translate, I believe, and I'll be interested to hear what you think. I think what people consider financial freedom to mean is they've got so much money sitting idly in a bank somewhere that they can just do what the hell they want. And I fear that for most people who want to run a business, all right, let me just wind back slightly. I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but just bear with me, Marilyn. Let's fingers crossed that it makes some sense. My belief is that as human beings, we actually all enjoy doing something meaningful. We enjoy doing stuff that is good, that makes our heart and soul feel good, that is creating some value, and I don't mean financial value, value to other people and to the world, right? That's what I think as human beings, I think that's what we're driven to do. We want to enjoy ourselves and we want to do meaningful stuff. Now, if you want to do kind of meaningful things, in other words, you don't want to sit on a deck chair, you don't want to sit in a pub with a pint of beer in front of you, you don't want to sit in a gambling casino and keep pulling a handle, you want to do stuff that has some meaning and purpose. 
if that's what you want to do, then to be paid something for doing something is a lovely kind of system that we've invented that just that just means, okay, you're doing good work here. Have some food tokens or some life tokens, i.e. some money. So to my mind, financial freedom to me means that I'm doing what I want to do and I'm living how I want to live. So I work and I don't want to stop working. I have no desire to stop working. Why would I when I get so much fun from it? And I'm doing work that is of interest to other people and they give me some tokens. It's called money. They give me tokens for doing it. So to my mind, that is financial freedom. Do I want a big bucket of cash in a bank account somewhere so that I can sit around nothing? I don't think I would, no. So that's my version of financial freedom is the ability to do what I want, where I want, with who I want. Now, I have a family. I have a child. I have a wife. My wife has her own career. She's an artist. My son is just getting started in his own career. This is where I want to be. I don't want to be lying on a beach in the Bahamas or swimming around. You know, this is where I want to be. So my lifestyle, my financial freedom means I'm healthy. I'm happy. We eat every night. We tend to eat during the day as well. And we go on holiday now and again. That, to my mind, is financial freedom. And yeah, there you go. What do you think? Yeah, I really like the way that you've described that. And I think it's an important conversation to have. We're asking this question to a lot of different guests and many different people have different perspectives. And something that you talked about was the ability to choose or your choice would be to continue to work. You don't want to sit on a beach, but you have the ability to choose to do work that's enjoyable and meaningful. And I actually have a similar definition for myself. And something that we've talked about on previous episodes is that if you're trying to calculate a financial freedom number, most of us actually really love working. Most of us love what we do. And so that's something that you can factor in to try to calculate something like that. And from my own perspective, to me, it's also about choice too. I really like working, but I wouldn't want to be in a financial position where I have to work just to earn money and not do something that's meaningful and, and something that I love. And so to me, part of creating financial freedom for myself is having a savings buffer and thinking about reducing my living costs so that I can work on the things that I love and enjoy day to day. But it's really interesting. Everyone has a slightly different take on this. And, and so I love hearing people put this in their own words. You know, it's interesting. I'm the parent of a, a lovely young man who's 19 and he's just kind of stepping out into the world. And I do not care what he does with his life as long as it's decent. I don't want him doing anything hugely illegal or preferably not at all illegal, but he is a teenager at this stage. But, you know, I want him to enjoy his life. So when I have conversations with him, I don't talk with him about making money. I talk with him about enjoying himself and finding out what he can give the world that the world needs. That's what I want him to be thinking about. So to my mind, Financial freedom is a phrase that I say it, I don't like, like it. I'm terribly sorry. It's not a phrase that I love. 10 years ago, this phrase that I didn't like then was passive income, you know, which is nonsense. There's no such thing as passive income, as far as I'm concerned. Robbing a bank is the only form of passive income I know. I think if you do meaningful work, then there's nothing passive about that. If you do good, good work for people that need the kind of work that you do, then you'll get paid for it. And then, you know, to my mind, that's happy days as far as I can see. So, yeah, look, I'm sorry. I'm not sure that I'm giving you the responses that you want. But um, 
Oh, but that's fine. I think it's really good to get different perspectives and good to be challenged on these on these things too. So for me, it's more about having a conversation and yeah, financial think- freedom. Yeah, whether it's a good term or it's not, or, or whether it, it is even something that we should be striving for, it's, it's good to have these conversations and get different perspectives. So feel free to disagree with me. I'm all for it. Yeah. Well, I think part of the thing is, you know, what worries me a little bit when I meet people, entrepreneurs, people maybe that are starting out in business, and they say, my goal is financial freedom by the time I'm 30 or something. I think, well, that doesn't work for me at all. I just think, I don't understand that thinking. It doesn't resonate with me in the slightest. And if someone came to me, because I, I do some coaching now, if someone says to me, I'd like to come to you because I'd like you to help coach me so that I can have financial freedom by 30, I'll, frankly, I'll tell them to bugger off because I'm not interested in that. If someone comes to me and says, I want to find my purpose and find the meaningful work that I can do and develop a business that gives me joy and allows me to be the best I can be, then sure, let's talk. You know, but the other one uh, doesn't work for me. Sorry. Yeah, that's really interesting. So there was a couple of things that you'd mentioned there. One was around the passive income too. And so my perspective is that you can get paid, so you can have a talent or a craft and people will pay you for that or, or you're creating value by following that craft and people want that. And then the other is that you own an asset, which is like a business. And you can have a business around a craft too, but the craft is related to you delivering that value personally to someone. And then the business is an asset that can generate income whether you're performing that craft or not. So, so that's how I differentiate those two things. So you could work in your business as a employee but you're also an investor in your business because you own that asset yeah i tend to agree with that but it's the word passive that annoys me (laughs) fair enough nothing's ever passive fully i don't know if you're familiar with michael gerber the guy who wrote the e-myth right and he yeah i've met michael a few times and we kind of fell out a few years ago because we had a bit of an argument about this because he he was he was kind of banging the drum of um, you know if you're working by yourself and then you know that's you haven't you've got a job you haven't got a business and that's kind of what we argued a bit about because to my mind if you're selling products uh, or you're selling services it's the word passive that bugs me to create a business that people want to be part of whether that's buying your product or buying your service whether it's buying it when you're asleep or when you're awake. And in order for someone to want to do business with you or with your company, you cannot be passive. You have to be constantly tweaking, nurturing, loving, developing, listening, watching, improving. There's nothing passive about it. That's where I get annoyed about phraseology because what worries me, and you understand this clearly, Meryl, by the way, I can tell by the way you talk, but some people, they don't. They pick up a phrase and they go, oh, I want passive income. I want to be financially free. It's like it's the you know the bit about free is a bit wrong in that in the financial bit and passive is wrong about the other bit. There's, I don't think we're doing anyone a favor. We're doing justice if we're giving them the opinion. Oh, not a problem, mate. You know, we can I can help you create passive income and be financially free. It's I just don't buy that. All right. So I've got a question for you. So if I define the type of person or the type of business owner, so. Let's come up with another word that's not financial freedom but encapsulates what we're trying to achieve. So this kind of person, they love their work. 
they always want to keep on working because they enjoy it, but they don't ever want to have to have a job that they don't want to do. They want to have enough money in the bank or enough assets so they're not stressed out about their money, about not having enough, and they want to feel comfortable that they can provide for their family. They want to have the ability to work from anywhere in the world. The main thing is they want to have choice over how they're spending their time. So at the moment, we're working with a definition of financial freedom, freedom of location, freedom of time. But what do you think would be a better phrase to encapsulate that kind of business owner or what they're striving for? Uh, Well, uh, that's a great question. I I don't really have an answer to it. I think if I did, I'd probably be onto something good because it it kind of centers for me around, unfortunately, the phrase lifestyle business. And I say lifestyle business doesn't cut it because of the way it's been kind of overtaken by people who'd rather just stick images of people in hammocks on Instagram. But lifestyle business is possibly part of the way there. It's having a business that really suits your life. It's not a snappy phrase. And I think note to self, do more work on this, Robert. Okay. I don't have a phrase that, um, that, that I, can, I can give you. And I don't believe one exists yet, which is why people hang on to other phrases. <laughs> As you can tell, I, I don't have a coherent response to that. But I believe when you're in a business that you enjoy and that makes your heart sing and makes other people happy and is clearly doing a good service and makes you feel like a decent person and makes you feel that what you're doing is meaningful, then I think you know, you're know you in that position. I've just finished reading a really good book, which is, I can't see the exact title of me now, but it's basically, it's about the beauty of working with your hands and how we gain so much when we actually create things and do things with our hands. And as a as a society, we're kind of losing that. We've lost that over uh, many, many years and many decades now. You know, we don't fix things generally. We don't repair things. We throw them away. You know, we get someone else to come over and fix it. We don't do our eyebrows anymore. We get someone to come and do it. We don't cut our toenails. You know what I mean? It's kind of all that stuff is just sort of we don't wash our dogs. We don't cut our dog's hair. We don't mow our lawn. All this stuff, we just, we get other people to do it all the time. And, you know, there's great industries that have grown out of that and best of luck to them. But I fear that as, as individuals, we're losing connection. We're losing connection with stuff. And, uh, you know, as I move into this next stage of my life in my 60s now with my business sold, with my son almost grown, you know, different stages, it, it's interesting to me. And this is where I'm. my next book will be along these kind of lines is working out how to connect more with our work in a better way with our work, with our lives. And um, yeah, that's so watch this space is, is about the best answer I can give you. Well, Robert, thank you so much for coming on this show. It's been a great conversation. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. And did you have any final thoughts that you wanted to add before we wrap up? No, I don't think so. I, I think this will be one of those podcasts will be interesting when I listen back to it. I'll go, well, I didn't know I thought that. But um, I don't know. It'll be very, I'll be very interesting to see what uh, your audience make of this. And um, yeah, it's been good talking with you. So thanks. Thanks again for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Bean Ninjas podcast. Here are three ways to grow your freedom business faster. Number one, download our free Zero Small Business Toolkit. Go to beanninjas.com forward slash podcast gift and use our cash flow forecasting template 
as well as the other resources available. Number two, subscribe to this podcast. Don't miss another episode as we'll be bringing you more inspiring guests, small business finance and zero tips, and also an inside look at how we are growing Bean Ninjas into a global brand. Finally, they say the best way to retain what you learn is to share or teach what you've learned with someone else. So leave a review on iTunes with your key takeaway from this episode. Alternatively, you could also post and share this podcast on social media. Be sure to tag us at Bean Ninjas or use hashtag Bean Ninjas on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. This will help us to grow our community and help even more small business owners to create freedom through stress-free finances. So once again, download, subscribe, and share. That link again, beninjas.com forward slash podcast gift. Catch you on the next episode.